Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi there, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a deeper dive into the airlines. First, I sit down with Gary Leff, founder of ViewFromTheWing.com, to discuss the continuing problems with airlines and, of course, customer service. And then, Professor Ganesh Siddharaman, the author of a perfectly timed new book, and very much to the point, the title, Why Flying is Miserable and What We Can Do to Fix It. First up... Gary Leff. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Gary, welcome back. I got to tell you, you had, you had a piece this week that sort of cracked me up, but also made me wonder a lot. Um, and I love how you have great sources embedded inside the airlines because you released a memo that was apparently sent out by the administration of American Airlines to their to their flight crews, to their stewards, their flight attendants, about how they should treat passengers. Why don't you elaborate on that? 
So here's what they said. In order to uh, create a consistent customer experience, they told uh, cabin crew not to give economy passengers uh, pillows, blankets, amenity kits, and certain food items that might be uh, available or extra in premium cabins. So don't go out of your way to create a surprise and delight experience for somebody you know, who might need a little bit of something extra uh, was the instruction. So basically, they, they turned this into an old Charles Dickens book. The defense says, well, look, you know, we should do the same thing every time, uh, and you haven't paid for that service. We're not going to give it to you. Now, of course, you know, there are plenty of uh, airlines that might still offer you a pillow or blanket uh, in economy. And at the very least, you know, taking the uh, items that are available on board and extra and using those to make the journey a little bit nicer, a little bit uh, more bearable when somebody's having, you know, having challenges. I mean, the interesting thing to me is that they talk about a commitment to ensuring a consistent customer experience. But I find that they don't really actually make this effort to do that in their premium cabin. Uh, and so it's not obvious to me that that, uh, that, that that explanation holds water anyway. You know, there's a chat room that I've seen recently, and, 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 and they have them for all the airlines, apparently. But the one I've seen recently was one that's called American Airlines Sucks. And, and everybody gets <laughs> on this chat line with these horrendous stories about, about bad service. But I don't, in fairness, if you will, to American, it's not limited to American, is it? I mean, these days... Uh, it's, it, it's, it, is, it, it is certainly not. Now, I do, on the whole, see more complaints in social media about American. That may be a function of uh, the size of their domestic network and that they have more of the occasional flyers uh, rather than you know, really frequent flyers probably than uh, other airlines as a result. And so, you know, look, if you are a really frequent flyer and you know the drill, you know, things go wrong and you roll with it. Um, and, but you're more reliant on the airline to go out of its way. And the large U.S. airlines aren't super well set up to you know, go out of their way for, uh, for customers. And, of course, we're living in a world where the airline managements of many airlines are communicating to their frontline people, no waivers, no favors. Uh, that, was, uh, that, that, was, that was Leo Mullen at Delta years ago. Essentially, yeah. good business was the line back in the day. That you don't do any, you don't make any exceptions for anyone, anytime for any reason. And what's um, and what's worse, Gary, and 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 I say this from a pure humanity point of view, is that the culture at these airlines right now is basically uh, saying to their frontline people, if you do the right thing, you'll be penalized for it. Um, there used to be something called the flat tire rule. Remember the flat tire rule? The flat tire rule was I'm on the way to the airport and I get a flat tire and I miss, and I miss my flight because I have to change the tire by about 35 minutes. And I get to the counter and I tell them what happened. Well, then they'll say, no problem, Mr. Left, we'll put you on the next flight. That was the old flat tire rule where people just took people at their word and did okay. Now that doesn't happen. You miss the flight, they make you pay a higher fare if they're going to put you on the next flight. Well, in, in fairness, one of the things that we got with, you know, these most fears during the pandemic is, um, 
uh, removal of charges for same-day standby. The problem is that with planes so full, you wind up on a wait list that's really long. And if you do miss a flight, uh, if, even if you misconnect, right, your first flight is uh, delayed and it's the airline's fault because it was mechanical or you didn't have crew and you wind up in a connecting city trying to get where you're going, the airline may not have a seat for you. So they run at, you know, at, at such a high capacity. So getting, getting that other flight is, uh, is really hard. Well, you came up with a term, I give you credit for it all the time, that the airlines these days tend to look at passengers as self-loading human cargo. And I, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, this is, we had deregulation in the late 70s, and a lot of blame gets placed on that. But it's one of the most heavily regulated industries in the country. Virtually everything about uh, the experience is, you know, dictated or approved by the government. I remember during the pandemic when airlines wanted to start handing out uh, hand sanitizer, uh, there were multiple offices of the federal government that they had to ask permission from. And that was even after the FAA had already determined that it wasn't flammable and passengers could bring on extras of their own, but giving it out required that permission. So the, the, what they gravitated to is a very, very similar business models. And it's very difficult to enter a market doing anything sort of different or interesting. And that to me is what is uh, frustrating that you, you can't just uh, you start a new airline. You have these you know, airports where the gates are locked up. You know, if you want to uh, go in Atlanta, look when JetBlue, you I'm sure you remember, was starting in Atlanta. You know, the airport was intentionally giving them the worst possible gates, right, and not near each other um, because they were a competitor of Delta. Um, and we very much set things up to be, uh, you know, to, to be to, to not improve, to not get better. I know. And, and so much of this could be solved by just basic common sense. You know, earlier in the show, we had uh, uh, Ganesh uh, uh, Siddharanan, who wrote this incredible book that's out now called, you know, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. I mean, you write about this every day. Um, and we are, have we reached the point of inflection here where uh, people are so angry and so frustrated that we might actually see some legislative change or some rulemaking? Well, look, um, Professor Sederman is a serious uh, guy. He's a you know, advisor, a long-time advisor to Senator Warren. Um, and, you know, he, but he wants to bring back regulation, the days where government set schedules and set fares. And uh, you know, I, I don't think that was better. It was certainly far less accessible. So, you know, there's positives and negatives in air travel. I think it could be made better with you know, the introduction of more competition, you know, and sort of breaking up the you know, government protected oligopoly of the major airlines. So how you get to this better world, you know, he and I disagree on. But it's a, it's a really important debate to have because, you know, air travel should be better than it is. Yeah, and it can be better than it is. You know, I, I went back the other day. And I found a cover story from Time magazine about how miserable flying was and what the problems were and what the solutions could be. And I read through the whole story and everything they pointed out, I agreed with. You know what the date of the issue was? Tell me. 1978. It was at the, at the <sighs> beginning of deregulation. So here we are, what? 
45 years later? <laughs> and what have we accomplished? Well, it's a very ossified space and it is a very protected space. And you can't just go in and offer a better product to customers. Um, it, it's not, it's simply not um, possible along many margins. And that's unfortunate because without that, it doesn't get better. So, so where are we really? I mean, right now under deregulation, no state can regulate an airline. No state can enforce any rules. Every time a state legislature has actually even passed bills on airline passenger bill of rights, it gets thrown out in federal court because of jurisdiction. Congress hasn't done anything legislatively. We're still waiting, right? We're nearing December now. We're still waiting for the U.S. Department of Transportation to actually release a passenger bill of rights that can be enacted and enforced. So do we have any hope? Well, to me, I actually think you don't necessarily want every state separately regulating uh, airlines and interstate commerce. But I do think a, a mistake in terms of is how the Supreme Court has interpreted the Airline Deregulation Act. The court has said that uh, you basically can't sue an airline for anything other than breaching its own terms and conditions, because at least with regard to schedule and price, because um, that would be uh the state regulating. So if you, if you go to, if you want to sue and say you are violating a, an airline's duty of good faith and fair dealing, you know, a long time common law principle going back centuries, you know, common law contract principles are deemed by the court to be state level uh, principles and therefore state regulation. I, I think we really need to restore the ability of consumers to uh, sue the airlines. I've seen cases where, and by the way, very recent cases where passengers who felt they were not treated properly and, and uh, took their case when they didn't get any, any uh, satisfaction from the airlines, they did take their case to small claims court. And I believe in every case that I've read, they won every case. Small claims court is an interesting beast and a great uh, leveler, right? You don't need an attorney uh, I mean, the, the airline can uh, you know, can appeal a, a ruling, but strictly speaking, you know, it's kind of um, you're going to get a lot more sympathy there, and the costs involved in appealing are usually much greater than the cost the airline's going to occur. Um, sometimes it's a better place to go than the Department of Transportation, which regulatorily, uh, you know, under the Airline Deregulation Act, you're basically only recourses to DOT. Um, going to small claims court when an airline has uh, done you wrong. Uh, is not a bad uh, choice. Well, when you think about it, there's no reason why you can't do both. Lodge a complaint, a formal complaint with the U.S. Department of Transportation. You definitely want to get on their radar anyway. We're just dealing with a situation now where in the first three months of this year, they've received record number of complaints, nearly 25,000 complaints. That's up something like 88% from the last year before. So it's okay to go on record with them. But if you're seeking some sort of a compensation, you know, most states uh, have a cap. I believe it's about $7,500 per small claims case. Some states are even higher at $10,000. And if you're, if you're under that number, uh, you might be well served to, to file a claim in small claims as long as you've done your homework, as long as you have a paper trail, as long as you have witnesses where needed. Um, and, you know, go for it. And if the airline... In many cases, I'm not going to say in all cases because that wouldn't be correct, but in many cases, the airline doesn't even show up for the case, at which point you win the judgment. And if the airline does show up 
in most of the cases I've read, they've lost the case. Yeah, there's two things that uh, you know listeners can do with the Department of Transportation. You mentioned a formal uh, complaint, and that's actually pretty hard for the average person to do. Um, but but it does require uh, on the record responses and an actual ruling from the DOT, uh, which can be good for setting precedents. But they, the Department of Transportation has a consumer complaint form online, and this leads to usually informal mediation. So you, you enter your issue with the Department of Transportation, they send it to the airline, and it's going to get much higher level of attention at the airline. If you're stuck in customer service and getting nowhere, um, you're going to get a real response by complaining online through, through the DOT, and you're going to get um, a, a serious response that comports with federal regulations generally. So at, at the very least, just you know, submitting online on their website is something that you can do. Which brings me up to my next item up for bids here on The Price is Right, and that's the, the, the growth of scam artists on the chatbots. Um, when, when oh, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable, you know, somebody has a problem in the old days, by the old days, I mean, three years ago, uh, someone would post something on Twitter and the airlines monitored that and would, and in many cases would give you a much faster and satisfactory response than you get anything else. Today you post something on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever they call it. And guess what happens? In some cases, you're not only being monitored by the airlines, you're being monitored by scammers who will appropriate what looks to be a logo of an airline or an email that looks like an appropriate email for an airline and respond to your complaint in an attempt to steal your money. Um, and so my advice to everybody is, first of all, you should, you should sign up for the actual app from each airline, which gives you an opportunity to, to communicate directly to them. But number two, and by the way, they have a system in place for, for verification and authentication of that it's actually you and that it's actually them with a series of questions they can ask you to which you've already supplied the answers that's on their system. But if you go online to, 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 to basically state a problem and ask for help and somebody responds to it, before you give them any information, there are questions you need to ask. And if it's, if it's about a specific flight you were on, then the presumption is the person who's on the other end of that line, whether it's a phone line or the internet, has your records in front of them. So you can ask them, hey, listen, what was my seat number? Uh, what flight was I on? What was my, you know, what was my PNR, my passenger name record? Um, you know, what kind of plane was I flying on? If they can't answer any of those questions, those guys are phonies and get off the phone. Well, I mean, take your advice even more seriously than that. I mean, don't Google an airline phone number go to the airline website, make sure you're on it to get that phone number because it's not just social media. It's uh, you know, Google as well. People will type in things like American Airlines JFK and a local phone number is going to come up, but it's not an American Airlines number necessarily. It's one that a scammer has taken over. Uh, and people do that all the time. And, and um, much of the scam often involves uh, real travel agents. Uh, scam travel agents that have access to uh, you know, travel records. And they'll actually do the thing you want them to do. They'll just charge you when you shouldn't be charged. Um, I've had readers that have been charged you know, $500 or $1,000 to make a flight change when their flight was canceled because they called the wrong number. And you know they were entitled to be accommodated on the next flight. Well, the agent on the phone was 
you know, got their agreement, they were stuck and they said, well, in order to, to make this change, it's 500 a person times Ooh. two. Uh, if you want to make the trip, that's, you know, a thousand dollars and, you know, stuck thinking they had no other choice, gave their credit card. It was an international trip. And, you know, that is sort of very common. You may be calling about a seat, but you're calling the wrong person and they may charge you, oh, it's $25. Uh, for what's otherwise a free seat, and they make the change you want, you're getting scammed by being charged for things uh, that you shouldn't be charged for. Wow. American Airlines is actually is suing um, one of the major uh, travel agencies that acts as a um, middle, you know, as a, in a, in a you know, middle role um, between the airline and some of these scam agencies for not doing its due diligence on those working through its platform. Uh, and they have their own answers and, and claim that the volume of fraud is pretty low. But it, nonetheless, you have to be very careful who you're talking to, even when you um, to Google, not just you know Twitter or Facebook. Very or good. Very good advice from someone who knows. My thanks to Gary. I know it sounds cynical, but I'm tempted to think that if some airlines are honest, they might change their branding message to read, we're not happy until you're not happy. Sad, but more often than not, at least believable. And now there's a new book that speaks to this, both with the problem and the solution. Vanderbilt University professor Ganesh Sitaraman has written a fascinating new book, Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. It's a page turner, and I actually read it on one of my recent, and you guessed it, delayed flights. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ganesh Sitaraman, hello, sir. Hey, how are you, Peter? I'm good. I mean, you know, this is the kind of a book that it's a page turner because you get to like the third page and you go, oh, it can't get worse. And then you turn the page to four and it gets worse. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the, 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 the body of evidence and the bill of particulars you could put together just for an impeachment process of the airlines is staggering. Um, and, you know, we live in a world that goes back to 1978 and the advent of deregulation, where I suppose I understand why deregulation had to happen. But I would also say, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that deregulation allowed a lot of bad airline management to show how bad they could really be without government protection. I mean, how many bankruptcies have we seen? Um, we're not talking about Chapter 11. We're even talking about Chapter 7, full liquidation of airlines since 1978. And of course, with all the consolidation now, it makes life for us as travelers quite problematic, yes? 
Yeah, so I, I think one of the real challenges with deregulation is that it threw the airlines into not a dream world of competition, but actually a kind of Hunger Games in which they engaged in really cutthroat behaviors to try to gain an additional amount of market share. And, and that meant over decades, as, as you mentioned, bankruptcies, mergers, and really a shakeout in the airlines that has actually meant more concentration than even during the pre-regulated, uh, the pre-deregulation period. You know, I go back to the pre-regulation period or pre-deregulation period. You know, when I was flying in, in the 1970s, there were three kinds of airfares. There was first class, coach, and night coach, <laughs> which was how we all traveled as students. Um, now you'd probably have anywhere from 30 to 40 different airfares for any one seat. But that's just the beginning of the problems, simply because we're all sort of trying to navigate in a world in which we don't have much choice. It's a real issue for, for passengers when you don't have many choices. And this is a real feature of the industry, which is this is effectively an essential transportation service. If you're trying to get from one place to another and you need to go there, uh, you know, you can't really walk across the country. It'll just take too long. Um, so you're going to have to fly. And if there aren't choices on the days you want to go or the times you, you need to go uh, to the place you need to go, um, you're stuck. And that means that the airlines have a lot of power over pricing, over quality of service. Um, and what are you supposed to do? Like I said, you can't walk. Yeah. But then again, of course, it gets down to uh, a promise and a contract. You know, if I say to you, hey, Ganesh, uh, I'm going to give you $5 today and $5 tomorrow, and I'll give it to you at 10 o'clock in the morning every day, and I don't, uh, you can actually, and we have a written contract, you have some recourse. If I'm an airline and I say to you, I'm going to fly you tomorrow at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'll do it again on, on Wednesday and again on Saturday, and I don't, what are the consequences? Well, I think this is a real challenge for for airlines, but also for passengers. You know, for passengers, we really rely on the service. You know, you make plans for seeing friends or family, getting home for Thanksgiving, uh, or going to an important business meeting um, based on the reliability of air service. I'll give the airlines some slack in the sense that really bad weather, high winds can actually be dangerous to take off or land. And, and th there is a place where we have to be understanding of that. But at the same time, we want this to be a reliable service outside of those things that you know no one has any control over. And there, we've still seen, I think, too many cancellations, too much fragility in the system, so that even if there is a weather problem, the consequences are worse than they would have been if the airlines designed their policies and their structures a little bit differently. All right, let's give the airlines the, the slack they deserve on weather because that's something we can't control. I give them that. But let's go back to the basics. How about scheduling? You know, if there's not a single runway in the world, whether you're in Mumbai or Miami, that can accommodate more than 23 takeoffs in an hour, and that's if you're really precise and you're like running a, like an aircraft carrier operation, you know, two and a half minutes of separation between flights. Okay, I get that. But then why are the airlines allowed to schedule 40 departures at 8 o'clock in the morning? Who's telling them they can't? Because it's physically impossible. The airports know it. The airlines know it. And we know it. Then, 
Why are the airlines allowed to legally schedule flights with a 33-minute connect time? If you were an Olympic sprinter, they'd have to call the paramedics. And that doesn't just affect passengers. It affects flight crews. It affects fuel burn. It affects physical ability of planes to be parked at gates. And then, of course, there's runway congestion. All those things you talk about in the book. But again, you know, we have to get everybody in the same room because the airports know it, but they're not doing anything about it. The FAA knows about it, but they're not doing anything about it. And the airlines are certainly not doing anything about it. And here we go again, right? You know, one of the things I found in the book, just to add to that, is while I was doing research, you see this huge shift after deregulation from airports being not very concentrated to extremely concentrated. So airlines moved in the 1980s from kind of point-to-point systems where you would fly nonstop from one city to another to hub-and-spoke systems where you have to connect through Atlanta or Dallas. Um, And as they moved in that direction, you have gigantic airports now. And that's had a lot of downside effects. You know, as we as we talked about, if, if you have a weather event in a city like Dallas, that doesn't just affect flights to Dallas. It actually cascades through the entire country because of how important that airport is for the airline's network. If you are thinking about uh, geographic equality and inequality and economic growth, you know, when you have a city that has a huge airport, it does really well. But the shifting away of flights from other cities means those places, you know, actually lose service. And who wants to start a leading business, a Fortune 500 company in a city that doesn't have much air service? Um, so I think there are these other problems, too. And, and then when you add on top of both of those, the concentration in the airlines, you combine it with the concentration at the airports, you have this additional problem, which is you're flying to or from one of these hub cities. There's actually very little choice, which also can mean higher prices and worse service. And so when you add all of that together on top of everything you, you mentioned, you're in the airport context in, in a really tough spot as passengers. All right, now, having said all that bad news, Ganesh, where do we go from here? Because we're all in the same boat now. You know, every plane is full. Traffic has come back in a huge way. And with every plane full, the airlines have less of an incentive to be competitive. They have less of an incentive to be loyal to their passengers. They have less of an incentive to be uh, much more commonsensical in their scheduling. So is it hopeless? I don't think so. And my book is really, in some ways, an act of hope, which is that I think if by telling the story of what's happened in the airline industry, why it's happened, it creates the foundation for making a better system going forward. You know, after all, there's a lot of people who fly. A lot of people complain about flying. And I think that's the kind of momentum you need to try to get policy change to actually happen. I hope you're right. Uh, You know, here's one thing. If you really want to get some movement done, find out the flight itineraries of of the 435 members of the House and 100 members of the Senate and just cancel their flights. (laughs) And the next thing you know, you got their attention. And by the way, that happened last year. Right When Southwest Airlines had their meltdown and some other airlines had meltdowns, suddenly legislators were up in arms about how could this happen? But I'm still waiting for some action. I think that's right. You know, one of the challenges for passengers is we're all a pretty diffuse group of people who are all over the country. And I think none of us, maybe most of us is how I'll put it. uh, Most of us don't have lobbyists to 
stay in Washington and lobby all the members of Congress. I'm a little jealous of this book, sir, because I think I could have written it <laughs> because I've experienced <laughs> it. Uh, but it's it, you got so much great stuff in here. And I, I have another issue to talk to you about, and that is one that's really at the forefront of uh, at least my attention span these days, and that's the continuing devaluation of the airline's loyalty programs, their frequent flyer programs, uh, how hard it is to earn miles, how expensive it is to earn miles, how hard it is to redeem them, and at the same time, how much money the airlines are making from these programs, so much so it's argued, and I think you make the argument as well, that they're making more money from these airline frequent flyer programs than they're making flying planes. Yeah, it, it's really turned into a wild situation over many decades. You know, your, your frequent flyer points have gone from the kind of thing you might have had at a, your local sandwich shop, you know, buy five and get the sixth one free, to, to really these extremely complicated financial programs that are tied up with credit card companies in which airlines are effectively creating their own kind of currency through points that are redeemable only for the things they say when they say and at the rates that they set. Uh, and that's a really big shift in how these programs work. And I think it's one that's of increasing complexity over time. And, you know, as the example just from a few months ago, when Delta announced changes to their uh, program, um, it's one where the airlines have a lot of power to shift the benefits of the programs and really make them less beneficial for consumers who use them. Well, let me suggest this. Every year, Delta Airlines sells their miles to American Express. American sells their miles to Citibank. United sells their miles to uh, Chase. And the, and the premise being that, of course, if you have one of those credit cards, you get at least one mile per dollar of spend. That's the concept. But would it be safe to say, when you think about how much money the airlines are making from this, a minimum of $7 billion a year for Delta and about $10 billion a year for United and American, and in many cases that's more than the market cap of those airlines, that the airlines aren't airlines anymore. They're banks. Banks with wings, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, that, and, and that's a real shift that, that we've seen. You know, this wasn't how the airline industry used to work. But it's really become financialized in this way uh, with this partnership with credit card companies and banks. And that's really shifted what the industry, I think, cares about. You know, when you're sitting on the plane, sometimes you uh, have the flight attendants walk by asking if you want to sign up for credit cards. Not that's some, a very wait, different wait, kind not, of experience. Oh, not sometimes. Every flight. They're, <laughs> they're actually hawking these things every flight. And by the way, what they're hawking is a lie. Because what they're saying is, if you get this card today, you get 60,000 miles good for two free tickets anywhere we fly. That's lie number one. Lie number two, which isn't purposely said, but it's there, is that good luck finding a flight that they'll give you the mileage for. And then here comes lie number three, which which is sort of like a failure to disclose. The interest rate on these credit cards is anywhere from 24 to 28% compounded interest. So you're not getting anything for free at all. You know, they say there's no such thing as a free lunch, and and that's an important thing to remember even when you're signing up, uh, maybe especially when you're signing up for credit cards. I know. So we have a a series of like a dual track of parallel addiction here, right? So we're addicted to the mileage programs because we've been chasing miles since the program started 42 years ago, right, under the delusion that we actually might be able to redeem them for what we joined the program for in the first place, which was a ticket somewhere. 
and the airlines are really addicted to the programs because they make so much money from them, they can't stop. Am I right? Yeah, I think this is a real challenge for the programs. And I'll add a third challenge uh, that's built into this. You know, what swipe fees, the, the way the credit card companies make money off of this are, are on swipe fees. You know, when you use your credit card, that's valuable for the, the card companies. They want you to stay on the credit card. But where do those swipe fees come from? They actually come from higher prices when you buy things, right? So there's an additional percentage that your mom and pop businesses are having to pay when you use a credit card uh, versus if you used cash. And so what that means is that this whole system only really works because a whole bunch of people are using credit cards, maybe without these point systems, and then not getting the benefits on the back end. Whoops. I know. So where does this end up, Ganesh? Well, I think there are some places where here we also need to think about real reforms. And some of that could come from regulators that are already out there, the Department of Transportation, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, thinking about how do we have a more fair system of both points on the airline side and credit cards on the, the financial product side. And, and I think that's a place where you know, they have some authorities to address unfair, deceptive acts and practices, and, and they should use those authorities to do that. My thanks to Professor Sitaraman, to Gary Leff, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the latest breaking travel news, and we all know there's a lot of it, just log on to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.